Hi, and welcome to a new episode of In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil. Hey, everyone. So today, Emil and I are going to be talking about a really fun and fascinating topic, which is maca. We're going to discuss its ancient origins, its traditional uses, and how people use maca around the world today to help things like mood and energy, vitality, libido, even fertility, and beyond. Before we get into the body of our podcast and talk about all of the different amazing effects of maca, we are going to start by telling you a little bit about Nootropics Depot's recent product releases since our last podcast episode. So without further ado, let's get into our new product releases. The first new product release that we are going to talk about today is pyridoxal 5-phosphate capsules, or P5P for short. Now, if this sounds like an unfamiliar product, if any of you have taken our alcohol defense in the past, you've actually taken P5P because this is a part of that stack. But I am curious... there's a very good reason it's in that stack. So let's, let's introduce it by just talking a little bit of why is it an alcohol defense? And that will open up the the platform a little bit for why is this interesting as a standalone so when we drink alcohol a lot of the effects of alcohol are GABAergic in nature and after alcohol consumption we can have some lower GABAergic tone p5p is very crucial in this uh, part of the formula because p5p is the cofactor for various enzymes and one of these enzymes is GAD, glutamic acid decarboxylase, which turns glutamate into GABA. So when we take P5P, we can actually synthesize more GABA, which in the context of alcohol defense is very positive. In the context of a standalone supplement, it can also be really positive. Let's say you are a little bit low on vitamin B6 levels, that also means you're low on P5P because vitamin B6 gets transformed in your body into P5P. This is the bioactive form. This is also one of the reasons why we went for P5P and not pyridoxal hydrochloride, which you see pretty often. And pyridoxal hydrochloride, it, it's not the most efficient way to actually enhance your P5P levels, but just supplementing with P5P is a great way of doing this. And not only is it important for Uh, GABA synthesis and breaking down glutamate, it's also really important for a lot of other neurotransmitters like dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin. So vitamin B6, P5P is a great way to maintain your neurotransmitter levels. And this is especially the case if you suspect that you are slightly low in vitamin B6. Very interesting. And what would be some of the telltale signs of being low in vitamin B6? That's a little bit hard to to answer because it can have such a wide-ranging um, symptoms associated with it. And really to determine if you are deficient or not in vitamin B6, you need to get your vitamin B6 levels tested by a doctor with a blood test. Otherwise, it's mostly guesswork. But if you are low in vitamin B6 and you take a P5P product, there is a good chance you might notice a bit of a relaxing and mood-boosting effect with it, something that someone who has adequate B6 levels might not notice as much, although most people who take P5P seem to notice a very subtle, calming, mood-boosting effect. But this will obviously be a little bit more pronounced if you've been deficient in vitamin B6. 
But the best way to determine whether or not you're deficient is to get a blood test done. That makes sense. And it also makes sense that if you are deficient in B6, that taking this as a supplement would help bring you to your baseline. And that might seem like a more perceptible effect compared to someone who takes it that already has adequate B6 levels. Precisely. That's really what we're getting at here. And, and you see the same with magnesium and with vitamin B12. When, when a vegan or a vegetarian even takes vitamin B12, they might have a really pronounced effect with it because there's a very good chance that most vegans and, and even vegetarians are deficient in vitamin B12. Uh, the same goes for creatine, for example. Creatine in everyone will have a good nootropic effect but it won't be super noticeable. However, in vegans and vegetarians, because they tend to be low in creatine, supplementing with creatine monohydrate has a much more pronounced effect. So not saying that if you have a really pronounced effect with vitamin B6 or P5P that you are necessarily B6 deficient. However, you might notice a slightly more exaggerated response if your vitamin B6 levels are a little bit low. In that sense, it's all about mindfulness and also keeping track of what's in your daily stack and what is bringing you benefits and perhaps trying out products one at a time like we suggest for people, especially if you've never taken a P5P supplement before. So there's one effect that I would like to chat about a little bit and I find it fascinating and I'd like to know more about the mechanism for this. Uh, P5P is also helpful in regulating prolactin levels and this is something we've talked about a couple months back prolactin uh, within conversations about hormones. But I'm curious, where does this uh, mechanism really take place and why is P5P useful for this purpose? Yeah, so this was actually a bit of an unknown benefit to P5P for me, but we kept seeing it come up and up on Reddit um, because the conversation of prolactin came up especially after some of our previous podcasts where we discussed it and we discussed the role of apigenin with prolactin. So the important thing to remember about prolactin is that a lot of prolactin secretions are controlled by dopamine. If dopamine levels are low, then prolactin is high. If dopamine levels are higher, then prolactin levels are lower. So apigenin, likely because of a dopaminergic mechanism, is decreasing prolactin levels. And in the case of P5P, this is part of the equation too. So P5P is one of the essential enzymes for aromatic amino acid decarboxylase, AADC. And this is one of the last enzymes that takes L-DOPA and turns it into dopamine. So if we provide more P5P, in theory we can have more dopamine production. And because we have more dopamine being produced, this can then also lower prolactin levels. So that's one of the ways. The direct mechanism by which vitamin B6 or P5P lowers prolactin levels actually is not totally known yet. So if I would have to give a guess, it might be because it's speeding up dopamine synthesis and because dopamine and prolactin are so intimately linked, that's probably why. However, vitamins also play a much more crucial role in cells and enzyme processes. So potentially it affects one of the enzymes that produces or breaks down prolactin into other hormones. So that could be another reason. It's just not entirely known. However, there are studies showing that vitamin B6 in the form of P5P can lower prolactin levels. So this is an interesting effect to look at. Absolutely. 
All right, so let's move on to our next new product release, which is S-acetyl glutathione capsules. And for those of you who are familiar with glutathione and aware of the benefits of supplementing glutathione, um, this will be a fun and cool dive into a slightly different version of this product. And Emil, I want you to tell us a little bit about why we came out with this version of glutathione. Yeah, so first we need to kind of revisit what is glutathione, and glutathione is a tripeptide. So it's basically three amino acids linked together through peptide bonds. Peptide bonds are not super strong, so they can easily be broken down in your stomach. So this means that glutathione, just reduced glutathione by itself, is not super bioavailable. Although, even if you take higher doses of reduced glutathione into 5 to 500 to 1000 milligram range, you can very significantly increase your glutathione levels, but only over time. When you want to increase your glutathione levels rapidly, the choices are a little bit more limited. One of them is actually N-acetylcysteine, but another one actually is if you just acetylate glutathione, and that's why we end up with S-acetylglutathione. And with S-acetylglutathione, the enzymes that would normally break down the peptide bonds now go to work breaking down the acetyl bond first. And this is kind of a, a common strategy that is utilized to stabilize peptides. A lot of peptides are acetylated or even amidated at the other end of the peptide chain. With S-acetylglutathione, this then means we can get glutathione into cells much more quickly which means we can get acute increases in glutathione levels. So this is where it's uh, set apart from reduced glutathione. S-acetylglutathione is just a better way to get a quicker amount of glutathione into your cells with a lower dose. So we're looking at a dose of 100 milligrams versus 500 to 1,000 milligrams. So a factor of 5 to 10 times less. Wow, that sounds like it would be a lot more bioavailable. And this product is also reminding me, it's a similar concept with the acetylation um, to some of our magnesium products, like for example, magtine or magnesium glycinate, where there is a bond happening between the active compound, you know, for this example, magnesium, to something else that makes it more stable, more bioavailable. And in this case, we're looking at glutathione and then this acetylation of glutathione that makes it more bioavailable in a similar way. Yeah, it's a strategy that is oftentimes used. And with magnesium, actually, one of the, the more popular forms is chelated magnesium with the amino acid glycine, which is actually also in glutathione. So one of the amino acids in glutathione is glycine. The method of stabilizing a peptide versus a compound like magnesium is definitely a bit of a different process. You're trying to prevent the peptide from breaking down, whereas with magnesium you're more so trying to prevent pH changes or other compounds in our diet like phytic acid from binding to the magnesium uh, sites, which can then make the compound so big that it can't absorb anymore. So there's some different functional properties, but definitely a strategy that's oftentimes used, tacking on something else. We see it with acetyl L-carnitine too. It's a very similar process where we take L-carnitine, we add an acetyl group on, and then it absorbs better and it actually has unique effects in addition to L-carnitine. It's also something we use, for example, with uh, alpha-lipoic acid. So 
one of the main forms of alpha-lipoic acid is NaRALA, which is sodium-stabilized alpha-lipoic acid. The sodium then helping it to survive the trip through the stomach and allowing it to absorb better. So this is definitely a strategy that is used over and over and over again. And in the context of glutathione, it creates a really powerful glutathione supplement and a great way of increasing acute levels of glutathione. And this is how I would personally use it. Start off with S-acetylglutathione or even S-phenylacetylglutathione, which we released a little while ago. They're very similar. Um, so take one of those for your acute increase in glutathione levels. And then after maybe a month or two, start adding in just reduced glutathione and then switch yourself over to reduced glutathione. Or you can just take S-acetylglutathione for however long you want. But this could be a good strategy to increase your glutathione levels rapidly and maintain them over a long period of time. Very cool. All right, let's move on to our next new product, which is astragalicide for capsules. Now, I'm not super familiar with astragalicide, uh, but I am curious to talk about it a little bit more and talk about who might be interested in this supplement. So Emil, will you just give us a nice overview of what is this compound? What is it supposed to be doing within our bodies? And why is it so important for longevity? Absolutely. So astragalicide 4 is one of the main compounds in a plant called Astragalus membracineus. Yes, Astragalus membracineus. It's a plant from Mongolia, and it's been used there for a very long time. And it's being used kind of as a revitalizer. And Whenever I hear the word revitalizer, I oftentimes start thinking immediately about longevity. And if you dig into what astragalicide 4 is doing, it is indeed one of the better compounds for longevity. The reason I say this is because it has an effect on telomeres. And we've talked about this briefly in the past on other episodes, but telomere is a protective cap that sits at the end of DNA. And prevents DNA from replicating in less than ideal ways. But the older we get, the less of this telomere cap we have. So we call this telomere shortening. And when our telomeres get sufficiently short enough, it means that our DNA starts replicating in less than ideal ways more often. And this is maybe what causes us to age and eventually die. So the idea is always being if you can increase your telomere length, you can protect your DNA for longer. And because telomere shortening is a hallmark of aging, getting rid of this is a really good idea. And extending the telomere length is kind of the holy grail of um, longevity research. But it's a pretty hard effect to actually achieve. Uh, one of them, back in the day, a lot of people were interested in this very big, long peptide that could enhance telomere length. Um, using Peptides, especially really long ones, is just not that ideal. You can't take them orally. You have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get them inside of you. So this is not the most practical way to supplement long term. So how do you actually enhance telomere length then if you're not using a peptide? You need to use these small molecules, but there aren't that many. The one other one that occurs in our bodies in nature and is somewhat easy to get a hold of and supplement is L-carnosine, which is actually also a peptide, but it's a very small peptide, so you can take it orally. However, you have to take really high doses of L-carnosine in the thousand milligram range, 
that gets pretty expensive. Uh, it doesn't have the best oral bioavailability. So finding something that has telomere lengthening effects that doesn't fall into this peptide large dose class is, is really important. And this is what astragalicide 4 is. You can just take at the end of the day, so the extract is 50% astragalicide 4, um, which means that with just 50 milligrams of pure astragalicide 4, you can enhance your telomere length. So it's a very, very low dose. Um, it's more cost effective, and it actually seems to have a lot of the effects that L-carnosine has too. So subjectively, when people take L-carnosine, you might notice an energizing effect. And we've seen in beta testing and customer responses so far, we've actually seen that astragalicide 4 is quite energizing. And this is one of the reasons people are really liking this product now. That sounds like a great addition to a longevity stack, maybe with the Opti NAD+. Yes, especially because Opti NAD+, is quite stimulating too, or energizing. Not necessarily stimulating, but it gives you kind of this charged up feeling. And astragalicide 4 can do something similar. Another really cool thing about astragalicide 4 is that a lot of uh, longevity supplements, they can also make you look a little bit younger because they actually help protect your cells and they help get rid of aging cells and sometimes they have skin health promoting effects and astragalicide 4 is one of those. So it will increase longevity and it can actually make you look a little bit younger. So that's a really cool effects profile. That is a cool effect. And it reminds me of a Reddit question we had a couple podcasts back when we were discussing NAD+. And the question was, uh, I'm, I think, 18 or 20 years old. If I take NMN or nicotinamide riboside, uh, will this make me look significantly younger? Um, and the answer was likely no. If you're that young, it's probably not going to make you look like you're 14 or 16. But as we age and as we notice signs of aging, especially within our skin, uh, these supplements that help uh, with our longevity can also be really beneficial for skin. So not only are you getting internal longevity benefits, but you're also getting some external benefits for your skin health as well. Absolutely. It's, it's a very cool product in that sense. And definitely something to consider stacking. So that actually brings us perfectly to our next new product that we're going to discuss, which is Opti NAD+. And for those of you who have been following along with the In Search of Insight podcast, you may have seen and heard our podcast episode all about NAD+. So we discussed a couple of products in depth in that episode. Uh, we discussed nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide. And that was actually before Opti NAD Plus came out. But now we have this stack product. It's really fascinating and it's exciting because there are... A couple of extra longevity benefits within this stack and we're going to get into it and talk about why this particular stack is special and might be something interesting for those of you looking for a longevity supplement stack to add to your daily supplementation. Yeah so basically everything we discussed in that podcast was going towards a theory of how we can maximize our NAD plus levels by combining multiple different products which we then realized we might as well put it all into one product because at the end of the day, you can take NMN or you can take nicotinamide riboside, but there are definitely some additional things that you can add on that make them a lot more beneficial. So why not just have a product that already has these in there? Because I know for myself, I don't necessarily want to add more bottles to my stack because 
frankly, I take a lot of supplements already, so having it condensed all into one bottle is a really nice thing. So let's go through the ingredient list there, and then we can also talk a little bit about NADH, because for anyone who has listened to the previous podcast episode about NAD+, you might have picked up on the fact that we were, at the time, still a little bit skeptical about NADH, but we found out some really cool stuff about it. So let's go through the ingredient list. We have nicotinamide mononucleotide in there, we have nicotinamide riboside in there, The reason we combined both of them is because nicotinamide riboside seems to have some additional neuroprotective effects that are not found with nicotinamide mononucleotide, and because we are a nootropics company, we are always looking at cognitive function and neuroprotection and just the health of our brains first and foremost. This is something I want to bring into as many products as possible, even though sometimes they're not strictly nootropic focused, I want there to be an emphasis on brain health. And nicotinamide riboside is a great way of enhancing brain health. So this is why there's nicotinamide riboside in there and nicotinamide mononucleotide. And actually, I've also found that combining them seems to have a little bit more of a robust um, energizing effect. We then added in apigenin, which we talked about in the NAD Plus podcast, because it inhibits an enzyme called CD38, which breaks down NAD Plus. So if you're taking supplements that increase NAD Plus, but then there's an enzyme that's mopping this NAD plus up, then a good way of maintaining higher levels of NAD plus is actually by turning off this enzyme a little bit. So with apigenin, you can achieve that. And by doing that, you can have even higher increases in NAD plus. In addition to this, there's also curicetin in there, and curicetin also inhibits CD38, but it also has an effect on the sirtuins, which work hand in hand with NAD plus to produce their beneficial effects. So Apigenin and uh, curicetin are in there solely for enhancing this overall NAD plus levels. So we're really focusing on the highest levels of NAD plus here. Then we added in NADH. So in the podcast, I was a little bit skeptical. So whenever I see a really big compound, I'm instantly skeptical whether or not it's absorbing. When we talk about absorption, oftentimes we're not talking about active transporters and we're talking about passive diffusion through membranes. And really big molecules can't easily pass through membranes passively. In fact, oftentimes it's impossible. So if something just physically looks big, if I look at the structure and then I look at the molecular weight and it's really high, that's a good indication to me that it's not going to absorb. This is not just an assumption I'm making. This is done through drug research for a very long time, and it's part of the Lipinski Rule of Five, um, which dictates whether or not something is going to be bioactive or bioavailable. So big compounds is problematic. But because NADH is an endogenous compound, we actually have active transporters for it. And when we have active transporters for something, the uh, question of does this is this compound too big to pass through a membrane passively is no longer important because size doesn't matter if there's a specific transporter for it and there's a specific transporter for NADH which brings it right into mitochondria of cells 
where it plays a role in ATP synthesis. So one really interesting thing that we noticed was that NADH is quite stimulating, uh, stimula or energizing in the sense that it really makes you feel a little bit more like your cells are charged up, which makes a lot of sense because it plays a role in the electron transport chain, it helps generate ATP, and there's a transporter that gets NADH directly into the mitochondria of cells. So this is one of the reasons why we actually chose to include it because it really adds another layer to the energizing effects and i think this makes it more acutely noticeable which is nice because it, it's just nice to feel that that something is working immediately you don't have to wait a couple of days so when you take optianity plus you'll know right away if this is the product for you if you like that level of cellular energy energizing effects so that's a really cool one and it's a compound that you don't really see very often, and when you do see it, it's really expensive. So being able to add it into a very comprehensive NAD plus stack is a very interesting thing, in my opinion. The last thing we added was trimethylglycine. So when you're increasing NAD plus levels very significantly, like we are with OptiNAD plus, then you might be mopping up a lot of your methyl groups, and this can have some undesirable effects. So recently it's become a, a little bit of a popular thing to add in trimethylglycine to an NAD plus protocol. And that's because trimethylglycine is a very good methyl donor in our bodies. And this is why it's in OptiNAD plus. Just like as the last cherry on top, we add in some trimethylglycine just to make sure that everything is working as it should and we're not depleting methyl groups, we're actually giving them back. That sounds like a super comprehensive longevity stack. So for anyone who was really excited by that podcast episode, give OptiNAD Plus a try and let us know what you think. And now we are going to transition into talking about the last new product release since our last podcast episode, which also happens to be the topic for today's podcast, which is maca. Now we released maca powder and capsules, and let's just get into what does our Nootropics Depot maca product, what are the benefits, and then let's jump into the body of the podcast talking about where maca comes from, how it was traditionally used, and some of its unexpected benefits as well. So to get started, let's chat about our maca extract and why it's special and why we both happen to really like it. Yeah, so our maca extract is special because it has a very high concentration of maca mines. Usually when you see maca extracts, the amount of maca mines are usually under 1%. That being said, you do get some other compounds, which we'll talk about in a second, but we really wanted to focus just on the maca mines for our first maca product because the maca mines have some really interesting effects. One of the most interesting effects is and if you look at the macamides too, let's start there actually. If you just look at the structure of a macamide, and we'll flash one up on the screen now, and we'll put it next to some endocannabinoids. So if we look on the screen now, we can look at the structure of a macamide and the structure of an anamide. And one thing we see here is this big fatty acid chain. And usually when you see compounds that have these big fatty acid chains with maybe a, a benzene group on it, oftentimes you can make the... Eh, it's not always good to make an assumption, but I usually make the assumption that if something looks like that, it might have endocannabinoid effects. And the macamides are confirmed to have endocannabinoid effects. So it binds directly to CB1 receptors. 
Um, this is one of the main cannabinoid receptors in the brain. The other one is CB2. The macamides don't seem to interact all too much with CB2, but they do interact with CB1. And this is important because activating CB1 receptors can produce a mood boost and it can actually produce a libido effect too. And this is where we think a lot of the libido enhancing effects come from. So in addition to directly activating cannabinoid receptors, it also enhances the level of endocannabinoids. So a lot of endocannabinoids are different cannabinoid type compounds. They are hydrolyzed or broken down by an enzyme called FA, F-A-A-H. And when you inhibit FA, it's a lot less efficient at breaking down these endocannabinoid type compounds like anandamide and even palmitoyl ethanolamide, PEA, one of the products we sell, oleamide, uh, 2AG, there's a lot of different ones. And they all get broken down by FA. So FA inhibitors are really interesting because when you inhibit FA, you just increase overall endocannabinoid tone. And this can have great effects on pain processing, it can have really good effects on mood, and it's actually very neuroprotective too. So this is, I think, one of the star effects of maca, is that it is one of the few natural phi inhibitors. There's not a whole lot of those out there. Um, another very interesting thing it does, it's actually an anandamide reuptake inhibitor. So it inhibits the transporter that would normally remove anandamide from the receptor sites stopping its action. But when you prevent this from happening, you have higher levels of anandamide. And anandamide, we also refer to, uh, to this as the bliss molecule. It's something that's often said to be contained in chocolate, which is why chocolate has these um, euphoric effects. This is not entirely the case, by the way. Cacao doesn't contain super high amounts of anandamide, and anandamide actually doesn't really absorb that well. So a better way of doing it is actually to get in a phi inhibitor like maca with an, an anandamide reuptake inhibitor. So if you really want this, this bliss molecule, then maca is for you. And this is why we went for a high macamide extract, because we really wanted to focus on these effects. And it's instantly noticeable. After about a half an hour, you feel your mood go up, your senses are more dialed in, uh, libido is up, it's a very nice blend of effects. It's an effect that you get with traditional maca consumption too, but it's just enhanced in our extract because we have removed a lot of the other compounds and focused solely on the maca mites. Maybe in the future we will look at more full-spectrum products because those are really interesting too, but this was intended to achieve a very specific goal, which we achieved. I can strongly agree that we achieved that goal. Uh, when we were beta testing this product, the first time that I took it, Within about 30 to 35 minutes, all of a sudden, I had a very noticeable increase in confidence, and I found myself making jokes that I and some of my coworkers found genuinely funny. Um, it felt like a sort of relaxed and just general mood boost overall, uh, just kind of a warm hug for the mind and the mood. And it was really, really pronounced. So just from the very beginning, I thought, ooh, this is going to be a really special and fun product. And I think a lot of other people are going to like it as well. Yes. And the stimulating effects are also there. So maca is traditionally quite stimulating, but 
focusing solely on the Makamites really has shifted the effects more towards this mood-boosting, relaxing, almost warm libido-type feeling, and the energizing effects are still there. I actually notice it in terms of wakefulness. When I take it later at night, I don't necessarily feel stimulated, but when I try and go to sleep, it's significantly harder. And this is pretty unique for me because I can drink a cup of coffee and go back to bed. Um, I don't do this very often, but sometimes after a nice dinner in Europe, you have a little shot of espresso, and this is something I'm used to. So it's weird for me when something keeps me up. Not a whole lot of things do this, and Maca does this. So it really has this wakefulness-promoting effect, and I found that if I don't get a great night of sleep and I take the Maca, I kind of get back to this feeling of maybe I've slept more than, than I actually have, which is really nice. And I think... This is actually one of the more traditional uses of maca, and to further explore this, we have to look at where maca comes from. So, like Erica already said, maca comes from Peru. Uh, specifically, it comes from a, a very small region in Peru, a region that is at a very high elevation. So, the majority of the maca growing region is right around 3,500 to 4,000 meters above sea level. That's super high. At that altitude, the changes from daytime temperatures to nighttime temperatures is very drastic. You can have very nice mild temperatures during the day and lots of hot sun, and then at night it's freezing cold. So another thing then is that you have very low oxygen levels. And plants, animals, humans, they just don't perform very well at these extreme altitudes with extreme climates and extreme UV solar radiation. So it's very interesting then that this single plant, pretty much nothing else grows at this elevation in Peru, just this single plant grows there. And it's very important to the local population then because there really isn't that much food. So maca is a great food source and in these andes mountains it's being used likely for thousands of years as a food source but also as a traditional medicine and part of this is because when you live at a high altitude your body just doesn't function the way it does at a more normal altitude so it's very interesting that humans have always lived at this extreme of an altitude but you have to do some unique things and when I was in Chile, actually, we, we went to an extreme altitude like this and we went for a little hike and it is very, very hard to just walk around at that kind of altitude. I think I was right at around 4,000 meters above sea level too. It, it's like you're constantly out of breath and you have headaches and your energy levels are low. And when we were in Chile, we were chewing some coca leaves and this is something that's used in Peru too. It's it's a way to energize yourself at these high altitudes because you really do need a little bit of extra help. And this is where maca comes in too. Maca is energizing. Maca is very nutritious. Maca is pretty much the only thing that grows at this high altitude, so it's a very prominent food source. It's high in protein, it's fairly high in carbohydrates and fibers and minerals. So very important food source being used for a very long time. And I will read you a, a, a quote now from a research paper I was reading, and it 
chronicles some of the uh, the darker portions of human history, the, the colonization of South America, but the Spaniards discovered something really interesting when they came and colonized this region of the world. They didn't know what to do with this high altitude, but the Peruvians did, and they really helped them out, and then the Spaniards fucked them over. Right, so here is the quote from this paper. The Spanish who came to the Americas came first to this part of the continent. As they moved up to colonize the Andes some 400 years ago, their livestock was not thriving at all, so the local people suggested they feed maca to their animals. The results were so dramatic that the historians of the time wrote of the importance of this plant in their journals. In the 1800s, it was recorded that Indians of the Junin area were required to provide tribute to their Spanish rulers and colonial records list an annual payment consisting of nine tons of maca being given. From our observation in the Junin region, many people knew that the plant was good for increasing potency, and that was in 1982, long before the current wave of interest in this plant. So it's been known for a very, very long time that maca is important, and specifically maca is important for thriving at these high altitudes, because fertility also goes down at high altitudes, because we have less oxygen. And this was seen in their livestock, so their livestock just wasn't reproducing, but then when you feed the livestock maca, they started reproducing. But clearly, the Spaniards had a lot of livestock, so they needed a lot of maca. And that's why they took advantage, I think, of the Indians there. Uh, they took advantage of their kind nature. And this is really, really sad. And we should pay more attention to what happened there and the importance of traditional knowledge in current day healthcare and supplements. To further illustrate just the, the kind nature of the people in this area, there's another quote from this study, and this is from people who went there in 1982 to figure out what was going on with this incredible plant. and they were looking around and trying to figure out if they could talk to farmers. And sometimes this can be very hard to get into contact and to talk about how it's grown and how it's used, but this was not the case, so listen to this. We met a man by the name of Lucio Silva Cordovo Tello in Ninacaca. He lived right next to Lake Junin, a beautiful lake at an elevation of nearly 13,000 feet. Legend has it that Lake Junin is one of the epicenters of maca cultivation, which has been going on there for thousands of years. We asked him if we could speak about maca, and luckily for us, he was delighted to share details of his cultivation and use of the plant. He was extremely forthcoming. Mr. Cordova took us to his maca field and told us that his father had grown this crop and taught him to do so. Please come to my home, he said, where he made us a porridge of maca by grinding up the dried roots and mixing them with a little bit of warm water, sugar, and milk. It tasted like butterscotch, was quite delicious, and since it was so cold out, it felt wonderful to share this warm dish with him. In our interviews with him, Mr. Cordova said that people ate this plant on a daily basis in Ninikaka, and laughed when he told us that it is well known that eating maca would help you have more children. After all, he was an elderly gentleman, and when we asked how many children he had, he replied with a big smile, 12. It seemed like a pretty good testimonial for the virtues of maca. That's both heartwarming and a bit funny, only because at this point, uh, 
for me personally, the idea of having 12 children sounds very overwhelming. However, uh, this story and basically the proof of Maka's effectiveness is something that I can uh, back with a little bit of my own anecdotal experience uh, just from taking Maka for the past couple of weeks and experiencing some definite libido increases. Um, I actually had a question about this uh, first quote that you read about the Spanish livestock and how this was used as uh, a supplement or basically an encouragement for the livestock to reproduce more. But it also sounds like this was effective with humans as well. But let's touch a little bit also on how these researchers were given the maca. They were given the maca in a porridge, which means it was cooked. And this is something that went really wrong with maca. So for some odd reason, Westerners are absolutely obsessed with eating raw foods. I really don't get where this comes from. It's pretty idiotic, especially when you consider something like maca, which over thousands of years was never eaten raw by the locals. They always cook it, they always dry it, yet for some reason Westerners decided it was a good idea to use raw maca. Which is not a good idea, because for one, raw maca actually doesn't contain the bioactive compounds you want it to contain. These are created during the drying stage and even during the cooking stage. So consuming raw maca doesn't make much sense. In addition to this, consuming raw maca can be a little bit dangerous because there can be molds in maca that hasn't been properly dried in Peru and processed in Peru and then sent over the world and sat around for a really long time with too high of a moisture content and then you can get these molds that produce aflatoxins and there can some nasty stuff can happen with raw maca. It's just not a good idea to eat raw maca and no one does this in Peru. No one seems to eat raw maca. So, Maca is harvested, then dried for three months in the sun. And this is where a lot of the magic of maca actually comes from. So when we were talking earlier about the maca mites, the maca mites are very, very low in fresh maca. And when you dry it for three months at this extreme elevation, with these extreme temperature changes, what happens is that for three months, the maca goes through a bit of a freeze-thaw cycle every night, and this macerates the insides. And when the insides get macerated, they release free fatty acids. And it also creates a compound from the glucosinolates that are in maca, that then combined with the free fatty acids through enzyme interactions, as is drying and hydrolysis. And this is actually what creates the maca mites. So, the content of the macamides can go up tenfold during the drying stage, and then it can go up even further during the cooking stage. But because the more popular use of maca in the Western world isn't necessarily in warm porridge, it's in a cold smoothie in some fancy overpriced smoothie bar, you are usually getting something that is then raw and not gelatinized. I find it really fascinating that the macamides, the active compound in maca that has benefits, um, are they are becoming or they're being produced during this traditional drying process, and this traditional drying process is taking place um, geographically somewhere that has really dramatic temperature shifts. So it's fascinating to just see how nature works 
with this particular plant uh, or food source. And through the nature of the drying process, these benefits can be found. And if it weren't dried like this, and if there weren't these temperature swings, you wouldn't actually get these beneficial compounds within the maca. Well, and actually it's not even nature, because nature isn't pulling maca out of the ground and drying it in open air. It's humans that figured out how to do this. Sure, but the what I meant with the kind of nature aspect is that the the way that the climate in this particular geographical area um, goes so dramatically from warm during the daytime to super, super cold at night, that that is a really fascinating aspect of how maca came to be used as a food source and a medicine. Yeah, and, and interesting there. And the reason I said it's humans and why that's fascinating is for some reason, who goes and dries something for three months? That's a huge investment of time. A lot of things can go wrong in three months. Your entire maca crop that took maybe 12, 9 to 12 months to grow, because it's pretty slow growing, you're taking a big risk by drying it out for three months. So why was this discovered and why do you not find fresh maca anywhere in Peru? Apparently it's all dried and then it's all either made into porridge or mixed with uh, a, a sort of a sugarcane rum type thing. Or it's made into, um, it's cooked and then turned into a juice apparently. But there's this long-standing history of drying it in this way, drying it long-term. And another interesting thing, like you mentioned, that the climate is necessary for that drying process, but the climate is also necessary for the growing process because at this altitude, maca is pretty much the only thing that grows and maca has to kind of grow in this harsh environment for it to, to properly grow. So the combination of these harsh environments and the drying in this harsh environment is really interesting. That being said, you can also achieve this by shredding up the maca, which then macerates it and drying it in an oven, and you can get similar levels of macamite. So it's not entirely essential that it is dried in this traditional way, but they knew something that took modern science a very long time to figure out. And the studies that I'm reading on this came out in the last couple of years. So somehow they figured it out thousands of years ago and we just took a really really long time to figure out that that's what was going on but that's also why you have this misuse of maca in the western world we shouldn't be consuming it raw it's one not as beneficial as properly processed maca and two it can even be a little bit dangerous so if you've been consuming raw maca honestly throw it in the trash and move on or cook with it but don't eat it raw it needs to be gelatinized and this is a process that was pretty much invented i think for the western market because in peru it's being cooked but we don't want to do that because we want to put it in a fancy pan smoothie so what happens then is the maca is very quickly at a high temperature pressure cooked and this actually browns some of the sugars in there too so if you see a maca powder that's very like almost off-white it's probably raw and if you really want to test this take that powder and put it in the oven. I recently had to do this on a sample we got that I suspected was raw maca. Um, it looked really pale. It smelled kind of like a brassica, which we'll touch on this in a second. Um, so I, I, it was being uh, presented to us as an extract. 
but the extract only had 0.6% maca mites, which properly grown maca has about 0.6% maca mites, properly grown and processed. So what I think happened here is we were sent something that was properly grown, properly dried, and then sold this to us as an extract, but it was actually just raw maca. So the way I tested this is I put some of these maca powders on a plate, I put them in the oven cold, and then I put the oven at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And within 10 minutes, the powders from a cold oven, so all I did was reach 350 degrees, just preheating the oven basically. But in this time frame, the maca went from smelling very much like a kind of a radish almost, a little bit fresh, somewhat unpleasant, to a deep dark brown, very pleasant color, very pleasant caramelized smell. And that's because maca also contains quite a lot of sugars that brown quite easily. So if you see a very pale maca powder, it's probably raw. If you see a maca powder that's very nice and lightly browned, then it's probably real gelatinized maca, or it's raw maca with caramelized sugar mixed in, but then it gets a little bit more difficult. But one way to determine if something is really gelatinized or not does really seem to be shove it in the oven and see, is there a color change? And does that color change happen in 10 minutes? Then you were probably sent raw maca. And this seemed to be the case here. That's really good to know because uh, this is reminding me of when I first tried maca myself. I was at Trader Joe's and there was a maca powder and I had heard of it uh, here or there from some health bloggers on YouTube, so I was curious to try it myself. At the time, I had no idea about whether it was gelatinized or not, I just went for it. But I did notice that when I was adding it to my smoothies at home, that it had a really pleasant caramelized kind of sweet flavor, and it definitely had some mood boosting and energy boosting effects. And it makes me feel better knowing that that flavor, that kind of caramelized uh, sweetness is a factor or one of the kind of telltale signs of a properly processed maca powder. Absolutely. And I've heard this a few times. If you've taken maca and you didn't like the taste of it, it was probably raw maca. Because properly processed and gelatinized maca, like you can hear in the quote I read from that study too, has a kind of caramelly, butterscotch, sweet flavor. It's very pleasant. And if you look at our extract too, it is also quite brown because through the extraction process, the sugars are exposed to heat because extraction usually happens at certain temperatures that can caramelize these sugars and during drying too. So it's quite a, a dark color as well. But the interesting thing is our just our obsession with raw foods, it, it's a bit of a fad, but it came into this maca too and it's just a completely inappropriate way of using maca. And you can't get the benefits from it like you can from properly processed and traditionally used maca. And this is why we should really look towards the people who use this for thousands of years and ask them how to use it. And this has been done over and over, which is why we know how to properly use maca. So I'm curious to circle back about something you said a few minutes ago, which is that a raw maca powder smelled a little bit like a brassica to you. And we've talked about brassicas, uh, this family of vegetables, on a couple of podcast episodes in the past. And this includes 
cabbage and uh, it includes broccoli and Brussels sprouts. But I am very curious to learn, is there any similarities between maca root and the brassica family or why do these have a similar smell? Well, it's because maca is a brassica. Oh, okay. Makes sense. So if you look at it, and here we will flash up some pictures on the screen. So looking right in front of us, you can see one that's slightly yellow, one that's slightly red, pink, purple, and one that's slightly black, maybe slightly purple. So these are the three different types of maca. You have yellow, red, and black maca. But if you look at them, they look a lot like a radish. And, and it's because a radish is also a brassica. So this is through and through just a brassica species. And when I said earlier that it contains glucosinolates, for anyone who has spent any amount of time looking into brassicas and sulforaphane, you will know that the brassicas all contain glucosinolates and they all contain isothiocyanates, which are produced from the glucosinolates. And this plays a huge role in the effects of maca too. You have the maca mites, and you have the glucosinolates and the isothiocyanates. And actually, it's the breakdown process of the glucosinolates turning into isothiocyanates that then produces a compound that can interact with the freed up fatty acids that then make the maca mites. And maca actually contains sulforaphane too, I believe. So this is really interesting. It's, it's a brassica. And it's a brassica that is very well adapted to the most extreme climate on the planet. Pretty much nothing else can grow here, except maca. And it's a brassica. And it makes sense why it's being used as a food source, too. And it's very important to these local communities. Absolutely. But I am now interested in talking a little bit about how people now would be using maca as a supplement and what kinds of benefits this would have for modern people who might be taking, you know, a capsule or two rather than taking this food source in its pure but cooked form. Yeah, so in our case, taking a capsule of something that's very high in macamides, as we talked about earlier, will have this very profound mood-boosting effect, this kind of endocannabinoid effect, but it will also have some effects on fertility. Although the fertility aspects are associated a little bit more with the glucosinolates and the isothiocyanates. And this is one of the reasons why in the future we will be looking into a more full-spectrum maca, so we can capture some of these glucosinolates and test for them, because as far as we know, people have tested maca for maca mites, but no one seems to have standardized a maca product to glucosinolates or isothiocyanates. And since these are really essential components of some of its more traditional uses for fertility, it stands to reason that we we want more of this in a more full-spectrum extract that doesn't focus solely on macamides. But in our product, we are focusing more on the macamides. There are still going to be some isothiocyanates and glucosinolates in there, so it may still have fertility-boosting effects, but mainly what we captured here in this very small 200 milligram capsule are the libido and mood and energy effects, which makes it really convenient to use because traditionally maca is also used in quite high doses. Apparently locals can eat as much as 20 grams in a day, if not more, which makes sense given that it's a food source. But it also means that with a capsule like ours, it's more convenient 
but you might be missing out on some things. So this is why we, we want to focus on a more full spectrum one too, but for the time being, I think this is one of the more unique manga products I've noticed, or I've taken because I noticed the effects so quickly and they are so profound. Now that we've talked about some of the benefits of taking a maca extract, I'm curious to go back a little bit further uh, to what you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the growth process for maca, and you mentioned that it takes up to a year to grow maca to maturity, and I just want to know why does it take so long, and do other brassicas also take this long to grow, and what makes maca special in this way? Yeah, so if, if other brassicas like, you know, radishes took a year to grow, you'd never eat a radish because they'd probably be really expensive. A, a vegetable that takes a year to grow, it's just not really economically viable. And the reason why we don't have vegetables that grow this way most of the time is because we're not growing at these extreme altitudes and extreme climates. But because humans and, and livestock is being slowed down by these low oxygen levels, and I can really attest to this, like you really need to train yourself to be at this high altitude. Just driving up to this high of an altitude in one day when I was in Chile and then going for a hike, it ruined me. It really was a good ego check. You know, I walked up a staircase and I felt like I walked up Everest. It's pretty crazy. So the same goes for plants. Plants have to really conserve their energy. They have to be really resilient to the environment. And this is probably also why they're producing such high amounts of these glucosinolates and isothiocyanates is because they likely work as protective mechanisms too. But it's slow growing and the process of growing maca is actually quite complex too because you have to grow it in two stages. So the first stage is you take the maca seeds and you sow them in land. But after you've sown them in that land, the maca is very intensive. It sucks a lot of minerals out of the ground and a lot of nutrients out of the ground, which is also why maca is very nutrient dense. But because it sucks so much nutrients out of the ground, that ground for one crop of maca can sometimes not be used again for another 10 years. It takes 10 years for this plot of land to regenerate and be ready for another maca crop. But you take these seeds, you plant them here by hand, and there's a lot of traditional practices that go on there too during the, the planting and harvesting. But the seeds are planted and then it takes about nine months, maybe 12 months to grow. Then the maca is harvested. And this is another interesting thing. Because there is yellow, red and black maca, it seems like you would plant red maca seeds and black maca seeds and yellow maca seeds, but this is not the case. The seeds from one maca plant can produce all three colors. Mostly the yellow maca is produced. I believe it's about 60% of the seeds produce yellow maca, 20% of the seeds produce red maca, and then, or 30%, I think, and then 10% produce black maca. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag in this field, and you don't know what you're going to get. This is also one of the reasons why red and black maca are held in higher regard, because they're also just more rare to come by. If there really are big differences, it's still not entirely known. It might just be anthocyanin differences. There, there might be other bioactive glucosinolates and macamides in there, but you can have these three different ones. 
That was going to be my next question, because as you were talking about these different colors and how often they grow, I was thinking about carrots and the different colors of carrots um, and also cabbage. But then and potatoes, it, too, because oh, if you sure. look at a lot of the potatoes in South American countries, we haven't selected for potatoes that are always the same color, just like with carrots. And it's actually because of the the I think it was a Dutch king, the national color of the Netherlands is orange. So when he discovered that you have orange carrots, he wanted just orange carrots. So they were selectively bred to only be orange, which is why we pretty much only see orange carrots now. But in other parts of the world, you have multicolored carrots and multicolored potatoes. Corn as well. And multicolored corn. For some reason, Westerners really like homogenizing stuff and we don't want different colors. We want bleak lives that are standardized. But and yellow. And yellow and <laughs> orange and yeah. But to more naturally, these carrots and potatoes and maca, they can produce all of these different types of colors. And it's not necessarily that they are different cultivars. It's the same seeds can just produce all of these different colors. So with that in mind, there's no um, deliberate planting of yellow maca red maca and black maca. It just happens on random. So now let's circle back to this first harvest. So you take the maca, you harvest them, and even really small ones you harvest. And actually, the smaller maca are less fiber dense, so they're actually a little bit nicer to eat too. So all different sizes are harvested. Then I think right about 10% or maybe a little bit less of the best of the best maca are actually replanted. So when maca grows, you have the, the root, the kind of the root vegetable, which you call a hypocotyl, and the hypocotyl then has it tapered underneath, and this is what maca looks like. Then on top, you have leaves of foliage, which is called a rosetta, or a rosette. And the rosette, upon first harvest, is very small. But when the maca is replanted, the best of the best maca is replanted, then the rosettes grow a lot and you get these huge rosettes and the rosettes contain the seeds. So maca harvest happens twice. One time to actually harvest the maca, a second time to harvest seeds so you can plant another field the next year. So this is a really complex process, especially then when you combine it with this traditional drying process and consumption process. It, it's really one of the more complex botanicals I've come across in its growth cycles, its use cycles, where it grows, how it's used, and how long it's been used for. It's quite fascinating. Absolutely. And also thinking about uh, the potential scarcity of this plant and this food source because of how much nutrients it takes out of its growing environment. Um, so that makes me think about, you know, basically the the nature of this root and how useful it is, all of the benefits that it can be used as a food source and a medicine, and that this is a really special plant. Um, and it's something that I certainly have experienced uh, lots of benefits from, but put into context with all of these different parameters and growing processes and drying processes, I appreciate it a lot more now. Yeah, and, and it just goes to show just how much we can learn from traditional knowledge, but also that we need to respect this traditional knowledge because there are people who did thousands of years of legwork and we get the benefit from this. 
by utilizing Maka. So the least we can do is utilize Maka properly. So stop using raw Maka, use properly dried Maka, or extracts like ours. Definitely. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your personal experience with maca. And for those of you who are listening, uh, we both took maca before this podcast, and it's been about an hour and five minutes or so. So I'm curious, at this point, Emil, what are you feeling effects-wise from our maca extract? So normally at the end of a podcast, the podcasts are quite mentally draining. I have to recall a lot of information. I have to make lots of links. I have to pay attention to Erica. Erica has to pay attention to me. We're searching hard for this insight. Yes, I, I'm still somewhat new to uh, interacting with a microphone. Erica is a pro at this because she's a musician, but just controlling my breath and making sure you're not hearing all of these mouth sounds and weird breathing sounds for me, it really takes it out of me. So usually at the end of a podcast, I'm drained, but now I feel super energized. So a whole podcast has gone by and throughout the podcast, I felt more and more energized and more and more uplifted in my mood. Where now after this podcast, I probably have to go to the gym or for a nice little run or some stretching or something, I feel energized. I feel great. Absolutely. And you certainly sound, uh, I mean, definitely as impassioned as usual, but a little bit more so, I would say. More confident, um, more impassioned, and more serious in general just about this topic. Yeah, and that's actually how I've been using maca too. If I need a little bit of a boost and I don't necessarily want to consume caffeine again, I just consume a little bit of maca and it gives me that nice little boost and confidence boost. And this is also really good if I'm doing something out in public that's maybe a little bit more um, nerve-wracking normally. If I take something like maca, I have the energy and I have the confidence and I have the mental clarity to push through. This is really cool because it is reminding me of our podcast talking about Tongat Ali and the effects and the benefits from the Tongat Ali extracts that we have. And some of these are similar, right? There's a mood boost, there's a confidence boost, kind of a, a willingness to, to push through challenges perhaps, but the maca extract does this in a way that feels a lot more warm and perhaps a little bit more rounded out and it definitely has a very 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 noticeable libido effect and it's not working so specifically on these hormones and the well, hormone systems actually, in the body we we haven't talked much about the hormones unfortunately but it's good that you bring it up because it actually does work on the hormones aha well i'm glad that i mentioned that so what hormones does it primarily affect then testosterone and estrogen so okay well let me just take a moment to say scrub all of that I was making a link between the benefits and the effects of the Tongat Ali extracts we have and the maca extracts but I didn't know about maca's hormonal effects so let's just uh, set the record straight and talk about that for a little while yeah and actually one popular use for maca is to give it to postmenopausal women which on some of our other podcasts that we've talked about, postmenopausal women oftentimes have low estrogen levels. So maca can help correct some of this, and it's very popular for its hormonal balancing effects too. Unfortunately, and I'm not totally sure where this comes from, people say there there is evidence for it, but people will say, you know, red maca is better for women or for men, and black maca 
and blends are created to have gender specific blends and I'm not sure if I totally agree with this I haven't totally seen the science for it but it seems like it almost works in a more adaptogenic way where it can balance estrogen levels for women and for men and it can enhance testosterone levels for both women and men and this increase in estrogen and testosterone also underlies some of its fertility effects. Very cool. This is a a slight tangent, but I do want to mention it because I think it's kind of funny. So one thing that we come across often uh, within the supplement world is um, using the benefits or the effects of a given supplement or plant and then calling it, for example, the ginseng of Africa. Yeah, and, you and, know, and in this case, what I started thinking about was perhaps maca is the Tonga Ali of Peru. Well, even funnier, it's literally called Peruvian ginseng sometimes, and Tonga Ali is literally called Malaysian ginseng sometimes. So it seems like every country has this one star player that they put out to the world, almost like a competition, like, hey, show me what plant you got, and the the best of the best plant is then called the ginseng. You're actually not allowed to call anything except Panax ginseng, ginseng, but you see it a lot. You see it with uh, Eulotherocentococcus. I think I'm not completely saying that right, but it's oftentimes referred to as Siberian ginseng, because from that region it's one of the star players. Although I'd actually argue that's Amanita muscaria, but we can't talk about that. Um, And then in uh, India, you have um, ashwagandha, which is one of the main star botanical players there. And it is often also called Indian ginseng. So it's this weird thing that we do where we go, okay, that's something that works really, really well. Let's call it a ginseng. And indeed, maca is sometimes referred to as Peruvian ginseng because it takes care of a lot of different things. It, it's hormonally balancing, and because it's also hormonally balancing, it can also help prevent bone brittleness and bone... It can help enhance bone remineralization because this is mediated by estrogen, so definitely a good thing for postmenopausal women to take, maybe even older individuals just to get that energy and libido back and some of the hormone profiles. It's definitely not going to be strong like Tangadali at enhancing testosterone levels, but it's more of a a slight boost and a balance effect. Very cool. I thought that it was important to bring that up because as we discuss more botanicals and different extracts, you start to see these similarities between them, but uh, the active compounds are quite different from each other and sometimes the benefits can be distinct in their mechanism. So it's cool to know that while maca has similar effects to perhaps Tangadali or maybe ashwagandha, that it's happening in a slightly different way and that it's going to be a bit more flexible for you because it has this adaptogenic effect rather than being so strong and kind of in your face. Absolutely. I think the more often I take maca the more I realize just how beneficial it is and I've I've been saying to a lot of you on reddit too that I take it on an as-needed basis um, because I really like the acute effects but I'm actually now going to try taking it more regularly because over the last five days I've taken it every day and today actually I took some this morning and then again before the podcast so even taking two doses in one day has beneficial effects and I really like it Um, and I'm also quite interested now in getting my hands on some more traditionally dried, maybe whole dry macas that I can 
make some of these porridges with. I'm sure I can find a recipe somewhere. And infusing it into a sugarcane rum and having some sort of alcoholic beverage with it sounds really interesting to me as well. So I might be playing around with that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're curious to see some of Emil's uh, culinary creations and uh, mushroom growing processes and uh, home experiments, you can actually follow him on Instagram and tell us your Instagram handle. It's pretty dash chill, or actually, no, it's pretty chill underscore nd. We can put it in the description. It's the same as my Reddit username. Awesome. So we'll put that link in the description. So for any of you who are into these home experiments, um, who are interested in fermentation or mushroom growing, and you know potentially some future uh, maca dishes, definitely go give Emil a follow. Yeah, I would. Uh very much like you to join the journey. <laughs> Absolutely. So that really concludes the the topic for today. This really fascinating and widely used botanical and food source maca. We've talked about its benefits and we've talked about its similarities to some other uh, vitality uh, boosting and mood boosting products that we carry, but we've talked about how unique it is and the way that it's grown, where it comes from and how it's processed and how that has basically set up this particular food source and plant to be so beneficial for us, both for its mood boosting effects and for its libido and fertility benefits as well. So now that we've come to the end of our podcast and we have a better understanding of what maca does in terms of benefiting us. I'm curious to talk about what products that we currently carry at Nootropics Depot that would make a good stack with maca. Yeah, there's a couple of different directions you can take, so let's deconstruct one more time kind of the, the main benefits. Let's start with the first one, the endocannabinoid, the mood boosting effects. If we want to enhance that a little bit more, so like we said, the macamides act directly on CB1 receptors, but it doesn't seem to act as much on CB2 receptors. So we can add in something like REFL, which contains uh, the terpene beta-caryophyllene, and beta-caryophyllene is an agonist at CB2. So combining CB1 and CB2 agonism is a nice way to round out the endocannabinoid effects. Another interesting thing is that a lot of the endocannabinoids in our body are produced from EPA and DHA, which are contained in fish oil. And because maca, the macamides inhibit FA, something that usually breaks down endocannabinoids, and it is an anandamide reuptake inhibitor, it will also go really well with the fish oil to enhance these endocannabinoid effects. And EPA seems to produce some of the stronger uh, endocannabinoid type compounds. So I've actually been taking the Avalom uh, high EPA, two capsules worth, together with the maca, and that really seems to tie in the endocannabinoid effects more. So I really like that combination. In terms of other endocannabinoids, you can also, while maca doesn't necessarily seem to have a very strong pain management effects, due to its effects on the endocannabinoid system, it does seem to really dampen some of the the stinging type pains and it can help boost your mood which when you're in a lot of pain your mood is usually quite low too so this is a nice one and then with that in mind too one of our most popular pain management supplements palmitoyl ethanolamide PEA 
is also hydrolyzed by Fa. So when we supplement maca together with PEA, we can actually make PEA more beneficial because we can more quickly build up levels in the body and more quickly attain these pain management effects. So I think this is a really cool stack if you're interested in pain management. Absolutely. Are there any other products that you would consider stacking with maca for its libido and or fertility benefits? Yeah, I really like it together with uh, Sustanch actually, and Sustanch also has uh, libido and fertility effects and effects on hormone profiles. If you want to push it more into the testosterone side of things, a little heavier, go with Tangadali. Or if you're really feeling adventurous, Tangadali, Maka, and Sustanch together could be a great stack. So this is if you really want to optimize your overall hormonal profiles. Um, in terms of fertility, actually, interestingly enough, NAD Plus is also a major regulator of fertility. I think we briefly mentioned this in the podcast too. So actually stacking maca with OptiNAD Plus is a nice stack. And I take OptiNAD Plus every day, so inadvertently I always stack the two. And because OptiNAD Plus has this energizing effect and maca does too, I feel great on this combination. And I feel like I have a lot more physical energy than I can exert throughout the day. And because of the positive effects of NAD Plus on fertility, this can be a great stack. Definitely. As you were talking about that stack, um, and in particular the energy benefits, something to keep in mind um, for your dosing and just uh, exploration of maca for yourselves is that this is going to be uh, a bit stimulating and mood boosting and uplifting. So like Emil said earlier, uh, try it earlier in the day. Try it in the morning or perhaps at lunchtime. Um, you may find that the that the stimulation and sort of the mood boost might have a slight tendency to keep you awake at night, but it's totally up to you. That's just our recommendation. Yeah. And actually, in terms of energy, uh, Peru is also a big cacao growing region of the world, and cacao is used by the um, indigenous people there for a very long time. Um, so a combination of cacao and maca can also be very beneficial. So combining chocamine, which contains quite a high amount of theobromine and is also stimulating, but stimulating in a more warm way almost, goes really well with the maca. So a little bit of maca, a little bit of chocamine, and because the maca tastes quite good and the chocamine tastes quite good, if you like using powders, you can actually make a little drink with the two. I like the idea of mixing some maca powder and chocamine powder and a little bit of a mood-boosting, energizing chocolate milk. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. So we hope that you have learned a lot and have a much greater appreciation for maca. I certainly do at this end point of our conversation, uh, just thinking about all the time that it takes to grow this food and to process it, and also the knowledge that we have gained from these thousands of years of traditional use of this plant. Um, these benefits, mood and libido and fertility are things that we could all probably use a little bit of in our daily lives. And it's exciting that we have this maca extract product in capsules and in powder so that you can experience it yourselves and experiment with it and see what kind of benefits it has when you add it to your daily stack. 
For those of you who want to do a little bit of deeper research or go back and listen to particular sections in the podcast, there are chapters that are going to be available on the YouTube video where you can see exactly what we talk about throughout the podcast and skip directly to that particular topic. You can listen to the In Search of Insight podcast on your favorite streaming platforms, and we really love it when you share it with your friends and when you tell us about your experience and what you learned on Reddit. So be sure, if you're not subscribed already to our subreddit, go check us out. That is at r slash nootropicsdepot, and send us a post, um, send us a message, ask us a question, and get into the conversation because there are a lot of nootropics and botanical geeks on there just like you who are ready to chat about all of these nitty-gritty details about mechanisms and supplements and stacks and benefits. So with that, we thank you so much for listening to In Search of Insight, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya.